The following podcast comes from an upcoming series from the NYU Euro Crisis Discussion Group. Keep an eye out for more information regarding the publishing of future episodes. While the Eurozone struggles to see strong economic growth more than six years after the onset of the financial crisis, many other countries seem to be having a speedier recovery. Bringing countries onto one common currency has some obvious positives, namely reduced transaction costs and increased labor mobility. But these benefits haven't come to the Eurozone without complications, especially in a region where political, cultural, and legal obstacles create difficulty in maintaining a strong currency union. At this point in the Eurozone's struggling recovery, it's only natural to ask, is the Eurozone an optimal currency area? You're listening to the NYU Economics Eurocrisis Podcast Series. I'm Will Comperdal, and here to talk with me about the Eurozone and whether it is an optimal currency area are Gaurav Gangli and Preet Rdeo. Yeah, Thank you very much for, uh, for coming on and discussing this vital matter. Thank you. So, Gaurav, why should we even consider the Euro a good idea? I guess we can start this conversation by looking at the Euro in terms of an optimal currency area and what really are the benefits that come with being a part of an optimal currency area. Uh, taking a step back, theoretically speaking, an optimal currency area is a geographical region which maximizes economic efficiency. Now, some of the benefits that come with it include A, decreased transaction costs. We know that before the Euro existed, different individual European countries had their own currencies. That naturally subjects them to exchange rate fluctuations, and there's a little more uncertainty as far as trade is concerned. And by transaction costs, you mean if I'm in Greece trading on the drachma and I want to trade with a, a German on the mark, just exchanging that currency for the whoever I'm trading with is a cost in itself. And so getting rid of that process is saves on economic efficiency. Right, exactly. And everyone in Europe was very aware of this, and they had, in fact, even before adopting the euro, taken certain steps to reduce some of these fluctuations. So they were part of um, a union of sorts where they did not allow their currencies to fluctuate more than, say, 1.5 or 3% uh, of each other's value. What they found was that that was very difficult to actually maintain in practice when you are uh, using different currencies. So just using a single currency removes that risk entirely, which everyone thought is going to massively boost trade going forward. Then there's the issue of labor mobility. I think a great way to look at this is by looking at the United States. Theoretically speaking, in an area where there is labor mobility, if one part of the country uh, suffers a lot of unemployment or is going through an extended period of stagnation, then people have the choice or the opportunity to move to places where there are opportunities available. Now, prior to there being a single euro and there being barriers to labor mobility, this was not really an option. But being a part of the euro and having breaking down those barriers gives people the opportunity to go to different areas. This is, of course, great in theory, but as I'm sure we'll talk about later, in practice, it's an entirely different issue. I can't wait to hear about that, <laughs> of course. how that works in practice. Going ahead, uh, there's also the, the issue of capital mobility. 
This, I think, closely links to the fact that there are decreased transactional costs when everyone is using the same currency. Naturally, there is going to be an increase in capital mobility and an increased efficiency in terms of capital allocation between countries and industries. And finally, there's the, there's, there's the point of business cycle synchronization. Now, prior to the euro existing, there were a lot of critics who sort of were skeptical about different countries running on different business cycles and whether all these different business cycles to some extent would align with one single currency. And one argument for that was that by using a single currency and maintaining certain guidelines um, by which each economy would function, there would be a degree of synchronization among the business cycles. So if the business cycles were not previously synchronized, they would be made to sort of align with each other as, uh, as they all adopt a single currency. Well, Preet doesn't seem too convinced. So we have to ask, why don't we just have one currency for the entire world? What are the, the disadvantages of currency unions, in theory? So um, I think the disadvantages really start with the loss of flexibility in monetary policy, which means that you can't really have one monetary policy for each and every country that belongs to the Eurozone because they're just so different to begin with. And also because uh, the loss of mechanism for adjustment as currency depreciation. So if Greece isn't doing so well in terms of production and Germany is, Greece and Germany still have the same uh, rate of exchange, which Greece doesn't deserve. So Greece is consuming more than it actually deserves. If you consider the United States, for example, if the United States wasn't producing enough, the uh, dollar would weaken and it would stop importing as much and start exporting more. And so uh, their production and their exchange rates would balance out. But this can't happen in Greece because, or in uh, Euro because of how different the countries are. So if you're in a recession, then you would export more because your currency would be cheaper. Um, and then also, if you're in a recession, you can loosen your monetary policy to stimulate demand. But if you're in the currency union, it's one size fits all. Yeah, and that just doesn't really work. And I mean, and th- theoretically, it should work. But as we know that the countries are just very different culturally and uh, economically as well. And uh, I'd just like to add over here, if we look at the European Central Bank, which is uh, the institution responsible for monetary policy in the Eurozone, and we compare it with the Federal Reserve in the United States, while the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate of ensuring price stability as well as full employment, the European Central Bank explicitly just operates on a single mandate, which is maintaining price stability. So it isn't really up to the ECB to inc- like to expand monetary policy to help certain areas uh, within the eurozone. And one common cry, as I think we'll talk about later, with the cultural differences between a lot of these countries, is you know to me that description sounds like it screams out from German history, a fear of hyperinflation, as they say. So it could be a, a common criticism is that the ECB is run really from a German point of view, and if they are operating from this mindset of inflation, keeping low inflation is all that matters, then unemployment takes a back seat and different countries have different priorities. Right. You can see where schisms can emerge. Mm-hmm. With that theory then, how, how has it worked in practice? It, some things have made it difficult for the Eurozone to function as well as the theory that we just described. So what are some of these structural or institutional issues that have uh, 
have held back the Eurozone. So I think um, if you had to compare the Eurozone with the United States, because that serves as a good example, in, in the United States we see that if uh, you don't have jobs in Arkansas, you can move to California and maybe find a job there. But in the Euro was supposed to do the same for the Eurozone. Um, the Eurozone has a lot of uh, barriers in terms of language barriers. All countries don't speak the same language. So, say a Greek moves from Greece to England, he probably he might not know English. That could be a problem uh, in finding employment in England. I guess it's important to note that there's not perfect labor mobility in the U.S. People are tied to a certain area because their family's there, maybe because they have a mortgage. So there's not really a case ever of any perfect labor mobility. Even if you live in upstate New York, coming to New York City can be difficult. But I guess is the point to to drive home that in the Eurozone, this is more of a significant issue than in the U.S.? Yes, I guess that's what I was getting at. Um, there are obviously many factors that tie a person down to one area or one country. Um, but language barrier is the most uh, noticeable one you could account for when you are studying labor mobility. One big shortfall of the, the structural nature of the Eurozone is no fiscal transfer mechanism. So what does this mean and why is it important to even have this? I think the best way to go about this would once again be to compare and contrast it with the United States. Um, which is a federal union and which allows for the transfer um, of finances between states and from a federal level to a state level. Uh, so let me bring up the example of Florida right after the, um, the housing bust in Florida. Now, a state like Florida, naturally, Social Security and Medicare are a massive part of its expenditure. Because However, they have a large retired population. Exactly, exactly. However, these programs are not funded at the state level. They are funded at the federal level. Um, so when Florida suffers an asymmetric shock, which is a housing bust, it ends up paying less to the national budget because of reduced revenues and reduced income. But, and it's, and in fact, Florida's tax payments to DC fell by around $33 billion. But this has no effect on the benefits that it receives from a federal point of view. Um, so the US government to some extent can transfer money from one part of the economy to the other. and But that isn't really an option uh, in Europe. In Europe, the Stability and Growth Pact explicitly says no to all bailouts. Now that again is in theory. It's not to say that in practice there hasn't been any bailouts, but in theory it's a lot more difficult to have that as an option in Europe without a fiscal union. And when there's an asymmetric shock in one part of the country, but the federal government steps in and uh, sort of helps deal with that asymmetric shock, it doesn't really affect the other states as much um, on face value because all states are mandated to contribute a certain amount of money um, to the federal government. Now, how the federal government uses that money to deal with asymmetric shocks in one part of the economy vis-a-vis -vis another does not come up as much in the United States as you would imagine it would in Europe, because in Europe it would essentially mean a fiscal transfer from one country, a country which is, say, doing well, say Germany, to a country which is probably not putting in as much as it should, like Greece. I think it's important then to emphasize there is the explicit legal barrier 
the stability and growth pact preventing this, but also when Germans are really unenthusiastic about giving Greece another bailout right now, instead of thinking of it as a bailout, we could think of it as a transfer. So when Florida gets hit by a hurricane and the federal government in the U.S. sends them money, no, no one really thinks, you know, and if you're in Massachusetts, like, oh, those, those Floridians always, always, you know, free riding off of us. And I think then it comes down to a cultural unity that you see more present in the U.S. Americans just tend to see Americans as Americans. And some states maybe resent others for being, um, you know, net positives from the federal system. But I would say that compared to the Greece-Germany situation, there is just a lot more willingness to help the fellow Americans. Whereas I think in Europe, you don't see that unity, at least yet. I think that's a very good point that you raised, and I want to talk about more um, after I ask this question. And um, when we talk about bailouts, we, what we mean is that, um, I assume, is that one country cannot um, uh, cannot help another country through the, the money that it raises by the taxpayers, right? So I think the the treaty itself doesn't allow that for for that to happen. I mean, Germany is without a federal union. Germany is just not even allowed by the treaty to help out Greece, even if it wanted to. And also because culturally, they just don't feel that they they just don't feel like it's necessary or um, to help out Greece because they they take yeah, care of Germans. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. They they don't see it as their people. Yeah, a major difference from the U.S. And the U.S., to be fair, isn't necessarily an optimal, you know, a perfect currency union, as we even saw with the labor mobility. But compared to the U.S., the Eurozone has these cultural differences that make the fiscal transfer mechanism a lot more difficult. Gaurav, before you talked about business cycle synchronization, how that could be a benefit of bringing in a single currency, there are obviously dissimilarities in these business cycles, as you acknowledged before. And I think to some extent, this goes back to the fact that they all share a common monetary policy, which is why when one country is doing a lot better than other countries, or if one country is doing a lot worse, such as Greece, um, what would be ideal is a boost in terms of fiscal policy, as well as an expansionary monetary policy. But that's not an option in Europe because an expansionary monetary policy would mean higher price levels, not just in Greece, but also in Germany, which a country like Germany opposes strictly. Do you know, has the, Europe, has the creation of the euro itself increased synchronization at all? I mean, we're only 16 years into the euro, and maybe, maybe it's too early to tell, but have the business cycles been able to synchronize more? I think there is a case um, for business, for creative business cycle synchronization. You can see this in terms of how price levels in different countries have been moving, which has been fairly consistent. But at the same time, if you look at it from another point of view, it's also been an opportunity. And well, an opportunity would be a wrong way of saying it, but a way to get around the system for some of the peripheral countries, which uh, previously might not have enjoyed the same benefits. Um, so take, for example, interest rates uh, and bond yields across the Eurozone. Now, when everything was going very well, a country like Germany would attract very low bond yields. But being a part of the same currency union, countries like Greece and Italy also experienced extremely low interest rates. Those periphery countries free riding off of the 
the the countries that investors have more exactly in. yes yes I think that's uh, I think that just connects with what I was talking about earlier about how Greece even though it has uh, such low production and such low efficiency in producing it really enjoys the benefits because a country like Germany is doing so well in terms of production so uh, they can afford higher imports because of being a part of the currency union. In a country then, let's let's say Greece, because they are the easy one to pick on these days, um, if they are benefiting from those artificially lower interest rates, or, or lower interest rates than if they had their own currency, it seems like there's an incentive to run up higher debt than they would otherwise. Right. Now, one another important function of the Federal Reserve is that it's a lender of last resort for banks. So when banks go bust, the Federal Reserve can stop in and guarantee people's deposits. But in the case of the EC, in, of the eurozone, it's a little different. Greek banks, Greek depositors will take their euros out and put the and deposit those euros in another country that they feel the banks are more safe, for the fear that the if the Greek banks go bad, the Greek government won't be able to bail them out, which is probably true. Right. Well, now look at countries like the United States and the United Kingdom. These countries do not usually face a risk of a rollover crisis in which bond buyers refuse to buy government debt because if no one else will, the central bank of the country will come in and buy buy those bonds. It'll be that's it'll be what is called a lender of uh, last resort or financier of last resort. Now this is not the case in Europe, at least not explicitly. Um, we saw this become a major issue back in 2012 when there was an increased risk that Greece, um, that the Greek government would not be able to fulfill its debts. And the central bank, the European Central Bank, would not be able to come in as a lender of last resort. What happened was a spike in bond yields across the Eurozone countries, not just in Greece, but also Spain, Italy. All these countries saw their bond yields spike to some extent uh, as a result of an increased fear of contagion. If one country exits the, exits the union and is not able to um, sort of pay its debts, what's to say that a country like Spain will not be able to do it either? Back in 2012, the government of Spain could possibly have a problem like this turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy where people... We're not and we're not confident in uh, Spain's ability to pay, and uh, that in turn led to a further spike in interest rates. The only thing that stopped that was Mario Draghi, um, the chairman of the ECB, then coming out and saying he is willing to do whatever it takes uh, to maintain the stability of the euro area. In a sense, the a fear of bank failure can cause a banking crisis because people will there will be a run on the banks even if there isn't necessarily an inherent risk in it. People right. will take their money out and then the banks become insolvent. Right. As, as far as the lender of last resort goes, the growth and stability pact forbids it explicitly, but the Eurozone has tried to do some things to circumvent this. Over the course of the years, it's introduced various mechanisms. Uh, back in 2010, it set up the EFSM, which is the European Financial Stabilization Mechanism and the EFSF, which is the European Financial Stabilization Facility. Now, together with the IMF, these form some of the institutions which made bailouts for Greece 
um, Ireland and Portugal possible. So it has to some extent come around the lender of last resort problem by setting up institutions which can then lend to individual countries. In 2012, the ESM or the European Stability Mechanism was established with a lending capacity of 500 billion euros. Where is this money coming from? It, it seems like a central bank being the lender of last resort by everything but name. If it's coming right. from the sovereign countries that are part of the eurozone, is it really is it really just a way to get around the treaty? Like they they recognized that they needed a fiscal union, and even though it was probably against the law, everyone saw the benefit of it. So people just decided to keep quiet. The ESM, to some extent, you can say, was an explicit way to get around this limitation, which was this, which was set in the treaty. Now. A lot of people accepted it for what it was at face value, but there were some academics and economists who raised this issue that the ESM was a fundamental breach of the treaty because the way it worked was in 2012 when it lent money to the Spanish government uh, for the recapitalization of Spanish banks, what it was essentially doing was printing bills um, and IOUs which it handed over to the Spanish government, which was essentially a promise of payment. Uh, and the Spanish government then went ahead with these bills to the ECB and got money, which is technically just printing money, but not saying that they're printing money. Okay. So, th 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 yeah, it, it sounds like a pretty pretty shady way of getting around the lender of last resort problem, but I guess for now it's, uh, it's what they're using. We, previously, we talked about the cultural issues that can prevent the Eurozone from being totally unified. So, Preet, what is social dumping exactly? Social dumping is when um, one country doesn't have enough jobs and they move to another country for jobs. So, say, so, uh, people aren't finding enough jobs in Italy, the Italians move to England and uh, they take up jobs there and drive the wage rates down in England. Therefore, um, the rest, the locals there won't get paid what they're supposed to be getting paid in the first place. And the evidence is, is mixed with the, the empirical the empirical research about, you know, how immigration um, affects certain demographics in any country in terms of wages. But what's more apparent to people is the job that they think that they should, the jobs that those immigrants are getting. And if they don't see the, the big picture economic gains, it's really easy to become resentful of the immigrants. Right. Um, and that's why, I mean, like you said, there isn't a lot of good evidence on that social dumping even right now exists in England, but uh, you always see resentment in uh, amongst the locals there. And what that really leads to is social unrest, which is, or, which is kind of um, aggressive behavior towards the immigrants, xenophobia and racism also in extreme cases. So in the case of the of the UK, the UK is an interesting country to look at because it's in the EU but not the Eurozone. And so there is some labor mobility there and there's definitely been there's a rise of nationalist parties, UKIP, and just general hostility towards uh, towards immigrants. But it's true, if you're if the whole idea of the Eurozone is to integrate the continent more or the Eurozone more these cultural issues, inevitably, there, there are going to be clashes because if you want people to inter integrate, they need to live, they need to cohabitate. Exactly. And that's what you see different uh, from, uh, from, uh, from the United States again. Because, because people in Boston will see someone living in Los Angeles as an American as well. So if someone from 
California moves to Massachusetts, it's, it won't be, they, they won't feel really resentful towards that person. And that's one example for that I'd like to give is that if they're, if plumbers in Arkansas aren't getting paid enough, they move to New York and they drive the wages down. But New York, New Yorkites or New Yorkers won't really feel as um, resentful against those who are moving. So in the last few decades, when Americans have gone from the Midwest to, to the Sun Belt, there hasn't been a massive, you know, the people who have been in Phoenix for generations aren't crying that, well, they might actually be annoyed by the Midwesterners moving in. But it, again, these problems might exist in the U.S., but to a much lesser extent. Exactly. And it's not as evident, you can say. So building on that, that, that cultural friction where, you know, Germans are more loyal to Germans than Europe as a whole... It seems like the idea of a fiscal transfer mechanism then becomes very difficult because if Germans don't want to give money to Greece right now under the guise of an asymmetric shock, then it might be really difficult to solve this fiscal transfer mechanism problem because of cultural issues. Right. It, it could be growing pains or they try to do too much too quickly that... Um, cultural unity in Europe would maybe need to take more time until they could solve a lot of these issues. And in the U.S., when all the states came together after the revolution, states really didn't have much loyalty to each other, similar to Europe now. But of course, labor mobility was less. Language might have also been a barrier, but it took many, many years for there to be really more American unity. So it, it could be at this point in Europe's history, they're just having growing pains. That's actually a very good point. And you also see evidence of the other side where all countries are adopting English as a common language and Italians will speak in English to say to French in English. So, so while they are loyal to their local languages, they are also taking the effort to get to know another language so that there is unity amongst them, or at least they can communicate in one single language. I think what this might come down to is that Europe seems to be moving in the right direction, but the idea of adopting a common currency and by extension a common monetary policy without a fiscal union or uh, a greater synchronization between the economies is what is currently putting the Eurozone in the mess that it's in right now. If you look at the United States, going back to the example that you just mentioned, the United States was a fiscal union for decades before finally having a central bank run its... More than a century. Yeah, before yeah having more than a century. Central, yeah. I, I believe it wasn't until the early 20th century that the Federal Reserve was actually founded. Correct. And that's true. And so, having said all this, what do you guys think? Is the Eurozone an optimal currency area? I think there could be reforms and there's always... Um, there's obviously areas that it needs to be improved upon and like we've talked about it definitely needs a fiscal union or uh, something similar to that given given the issues that we've talked about with that are you optimistic about them developing a fiscal union will it maybe take more prolonged economic stagnation for Europeans to finally say okay maybe this is what we need and then they give up because to me I'm hesitant it seems like if you're giving up some of your sovereignty to a European treasury. People aren't necessarily comfortable with that. I mean, even in the U.S., states don't always want to give up money to the federal government. They want to keep it local. So are you optimistic that, that they might be able to overcome that issue? I don't know if I'm optimistic, and I, I know that they are hesitant about um, giving up their power to a, a, like a single organization. If they want to be a part of the Eurozone, I think they'll have to... Like, a federal union is inevitable. Right. I think, I think it's been raised 
at a lot of times. I think many people are very well aware of this situation. Mario Draghi keeps bringing it up all the time. In a recent interview of um, Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek prime minister, uh, sorry, the Greek finance minister, he too raised this issue that it all does to some extent boil down to having a common monetary policy without a fiscal union. Now, the whole idea behind which the euro was developed was greater integration and this idea of a European ideology coming about. And the extent to which the Eurozone countries have gone to keep the euro together over the last five or six years, to some extent, I believe, demonstrates the, the willingness to do what is necessary to keep it together. Now, I'm not saying that this necessarily means that they are willing to take that final plunge, but I feel that there is case for optimism. And I too believe that somewhere down the line, maybe 20 years down the line, this would all be a massive learning experience towards what will eventually be a more integrated Europe. I strongly believe that Europe has two options at this stage, either move ahead with greater integration or undo what they've been working on over the last 20 years. I guess then it, we could look at optim, optimal currency area as not just a static thing, because maybe right now the Eurozone is not an optimal currency area, but 20 years after some growing pains, after struggling with these, these issues and frictions, they could become more integrated. The cultural barriers could go down, perhaps uh, you know the language barriers, things like that. And if there's more political willingness for a fiscal transfer mechanism, then it could become an optimal currency area. Because the way that I see it right now is that Europe is really in effectively a depression. None of the countries are back to trend growth at all. Some are recovering better than others, but monetary policy right now is seems ineffective. QE likely not, not going to solve the issues. And so if we do conclude that the fiscal union is necessary, it seems like the way the system is set up right now, the Eurozone... If the Eurozone can't deal with the situation right now, six and a half years after Lehman collapses, then how can it ever really maintain? How can it be optimal if, if this is the best we can get? Currency unions can increase economic integration and collectively provide a stronger economic union for areas involved. But not every region is necessarily destined to be a singular currency zone. As we can see with the Eurozone, complications can make it difficult to realize the theoretical benefits and should make us think twice about whether the eurozone is indeed what we might call an optimal currency area this episode of upset patterns was recorded at new york university in new york new york i'm will comparable and my guests today have been gaurav gangly and preet rishdeo